Amen. All right. Acts chapter 10 um, is where we're picking up this morning. Now, last couple of weeks ago when, when I was with you, um, we were in chapter 8 and then we were in chapter 9. And when we were in chapter 8, we saw that the gospel was beginning to get outside of Jerusalem. And it was getting into Samaria. Uh, it was getting into to the Ethiopian eunuch. And what we saw is that the gospel's beginning to get out. Outside of the, the Jewish world, outside of Jerusalem, and it's pressing out, which was always God's plan. And he told them, remember, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and Judea, and throughout the ends of the earth. And fun tidbit, uh, Ethiopia, the Ethiopia of that day, uh, the Ethiopia, when we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, we think of the Ethiopia we know today, not the same place. But the Ethiopia of that day, was, it was kind of nicknamed, it was kind of thought of as the end of the earth. And so what God is giving us there in Acts chapter 8, what we're seeing there is a picture of the, of the promise is going to be fulfilled, the, the God's commitment to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth is going to be fulfilled. And Acts chapter 8 is just a foretaste of that, of showing us that the gospel is going to go. And then when you get to chapter 9, we have a monumental thing that happens in Acts. The biggest enemy of the church, other than Satan at that time, was a man named Saul of Tarsus. And God radically saved Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, in Acts chapter 9. And he raises him up to be kind of the chief evangelist, the chief apostle, if you will, to take the gospel to non-Jewish people. And thank God for that if you're here this morning and you're not Jewish. Okay? We are grateful for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So when we get to Acts chapter 10, as we're in this series, and we're calling it Unstoppable, because what we're seeing is the work of God, the mission of God, the church of God, the gospel of Christ is unstoppable as it, be, as we, as it spreads throughout the world, as God's kingdom is advancing throughout the world, and God's purposes are being accomplished. And when we get to Acts chapter 10 and 11, we get to a turning place in Acts, and the top is about to pop off the bottle. Okay, this is the time where, I mean, it's about, you're about to have just an eruption of the gospel going forth uh, to the nations that a big turning point happens in chapter 10 with the salvation of a group of Gentiles that we're going to read about this morning. And we're going to see, man, the gospel is about to go forth like crazy and begin to spread. And we are still feeling the effects of it to this day. And so it's a major shift. And we see that this ministry to the Gentiles, um, this kind of in, in, in mass, in aggressive nature. We got a taste of it in Acts chapter 8. But in this aggressive nature begins with the ministry of Peter. And, um, and we'll see that Peter has some issues in his life that he's going to have to work through, that God's going to use a, a moment in his life to begin to bring about more gospel change in his heart and his life as he matures in the faith and begins to understand more and more as he begins to take the gospel the Gentiles as well. Now, this text this morning that we're going to read together has a lot to say about the gospel and who it's for. And so it has a lot to say about, as God's people, who we are for and to understand the implications of the gospel. See, we're prone, it's human nature, to drift towards people that you feel like you have the most in common with. That's just human nature. Uh, to, to live in a bubble, to live in a box, um, that's human nature. We, we, we don't drift towards diversity. We drift towards the opposite of that. We drift towards people just like us, right? And, 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 and that's true culturally. It, you, you can, 
So many different ways that we could touch on that this morning and, and, and go through that point. You can walk into a high school cafeteria and see it play out. You can walk into a workplace lunchroom and see it play out. You can walk into neighborhoods in our city and see this play out. This is just our human nature. But what we have to understand is that today's text highlights how God, through the power of the gospel, is building a church of unstoppable diversity. And while human nature might be to drift towards this people like me, whatever that means, people like you, whatever that means, people that you feel like you understand the best, people you feel like that think like you, people that come from the same cultural background that you are, whatever, while that might seem natural, the gospel is all about an unstoppable movement towards diversity in God's people and in the church that will ultimately see itself fully played out in eternity. And we see it, we get glimpses of it, and we get pictures of it in the local church. The local church should be kind of a beacon of light and hope to point to the world what it looks like when people from all sort of cultural backgrounds and racial backgrounds and ethnic diversity and all these sort of things can come together in one place because they have Jesus in common, because they have being made in the image of God in common, because they are family through the blood of Christ in common. And so there should be a diversity and at the same time a unity within that that speaks and that preaches and that, and that displays the beauty of the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. That's one of the chief things that the church does in this world as salt and as light. So the text today is going to highlight that. And the global church is a diverse people of every nation and tribe. I mean, there are people all over this world from all sorts of cultural backgrounds. That's the amazing thing about the gospel is that rednecks in Alabama where I'm from and, uh, you know, yuppies wherever, you know, or, or, or people in unreached people groups or people that come out of a Muslim background or a Buddhist background and people from all over the world can hear the gospel the Spirit of God can move on their heart. They can repent and believe the gospel. And they're brought into one faith family. One body. And that's what we're going to see taking place beginning in Acts chapter 10 is getting a picture of what God's doing in the world. So I want us to see the work of diversity God is doing in the church and examine how we can better strive personally and corporately to get on board with what God is doing. So look with me starting in Acts chapter 10 verse 1. This morning, we're going to, a lot of scripture to read this morning. We're going to skip some stuff and we're going to kind of read through it and summarize and we've got some application for us this morning. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Is that city, that area, Joppa, does that sound familiar to you at all if you're someone that's familiar with the Bible? 
A story in the Old Testament, maybe, that harkens back to. Jonah. Jonah. You see the city of Joppa. You see Nineveh. These are cities that you see back then. There's some similarities in what we're going to see today in the story of Jonah that we'll get to at the end of the message today. Now, Cornelius here in this passage is an Italian Roman soldier, a centurion. Now, this is a position in the Roman army that meant he was over roughly 100 soldiers. So he was in a position of authority. He was paid roughly five times that of a normal soldier, so he was fairly well off. So he was a wealthy, influential man. And centurions were very important. Some called them, someone, one commentator called them the backbone of the Roman army in that day. Very critical and important uh, to what the Romans were doing in the world at that time. Now, we also learned that he's a, what is called a God-fearer. In other words, he was not a full convert to Judaism, but one, he was monotheistic. He believed in the God of Israel. Um, he does good things, like give generously to the poor. He prays, but he needs to be saved. And we're going to see that here, starting with me in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he, came, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, Peter here has an experience where God in a vision is telling him to eat something that he would normally, under no circumstances, eat. God is telling him, in other words, that the dietary laws that have been so strictly enforced in the Old Testament are no longer in binding effect on him. He's telling him, it's okay to have the barbecue sandwich. It's okay to eat pork rinds. Those things are okay now. That's, that's, that's what's happening. One thing that's happening, but it's got much bigger ramifications than that. See, the Jews could not eat unclean animals under the Old Testament law. Um, so they could, so pigs, for instance, swine. This, this was one of the animals that they weren't allowed to eat. And this dietary laws are passing away, but it's a picture of something much bigger that we're going to get to. Now, Peter's about to learn a big, the bigger picture of this as the story unfolds. And when you get to verses 17 through 26, while Peter is trying to discern what just happened and what this vision is about, the Holy Spirit tells Peter that he has sent three men to him. Remember, this is the men Cornelius is sending. And the three men Cornelius sent show up at the door at the house where Peter's staying and explain how Cornelius was directed by an angel to send for Peter. He then travels to Cornelius and he meets him. That's where we pick up in verse 27 of chapter 10. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So he's at Cornelius' house, and he gets there. There's a whole crowd. Because Cornelius has brought the whole family, all of his friends. He's, out, he's just got them all over to hear what Peter has to say. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask, I ask then, why you sent for me? Now, when Peter speaks of it being unlawful for a Jew to associate with another nation, with Gentiles, see, when you see that term in the Bible, when you see the term Gentile, that's anybody that's not Jewish, okay? That's every other race on earth is Gentile other than 
the Jews. And he's not speaking of there being an Old Testament law saying that. He's speaking of the traditions that they had passed down, that they treated as equal to God's law, that they had added on top of God's law. Because they felt like in order to properly observe all the dietary laws and things like that, because Gentiles ate things that they deemed as unclean. They would eat animals that were sacrificed to uh, to other false gods. And so they believed that to keep all their laws and to keep themselves clean, they couldn't even associate with the Gentiles, which made it real hard for them to be the light to the nations, to the Gentiles, that God had called Israel to be all the way back in the Old Testament. So these Gentiles were normally seen by the Jewish people as unclean. They wouldn't go into their home, much less eat with them. Um, there, there was a huge wall, a huge racial, ethnic, religious barrier there that was much more difficult to get through and wade through and to talk about and to navigate than what we see in our culture currently today among various races and ethnicities and cultures. And in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius tells about his vision and how he is ready to hear what Peter has been commanded by the Lord. In other words, he's saying, give me the gospel, which is great. I mean, this is someone, God has obviously been working in Cornelius' heart. He, he wants to hear whatever this message is. He knows he's got a word from God for him. He wants to hear what it is. And think about it. Peter just walked into his house and said, you know, it's not even cool for me to be here. My people wouldn't like it if I... We kind of think you people are are unclean, are outsiders, are are common. Can you imagine this room full of people who are all Gentile, and the Jewish guy walks in, and he's like, you know, it's scandalous that I'm even here. But God is working in the heart of Cornelius, and he wants to hear. And they understand that there is this barrier that is there between Jew and between Gentile and something kind of scandalous is happening here with them in this house and something even more scandalous in the eyes of some is about to happen. And so in verse 34, Peter begins to preach the gospel to him because that's the message God has commanded him to take to the nations. Verse 34 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. We pause there. Before Peter says, let me tell you what the gospel means to you, he immediately starts talking about how the gospel is changing him. He says, verse 35, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He's hearkening Deuteronomy, where it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the appointed one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things... Right in the middle of the sermon, it says, The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, after this, chapter 11 tells us that word began to spread what has happened. A large number of Gentiles have believed and the Holy Spirit has fell on them in power. And people are hearing about this. And one particular group of Jewish believers was ticked. Peter gets back to Jerusalem to share the story of all this great stuff that's happened. But there was one particular group of Jewish Christians who just didn't like it. How could Peter even go there and eat, they asked. I mean... Revival's breaking out. The gospel's going for Just as Jesus said it was, when Peter shows up to share the story, instead of getting high fives, he gets this little committee of people coming up to him going, how in the world could you even eat with these people? And Peter recounts the story of his vision and what happened. So chapter 11 is kind of a repeat. This story is told over and over again. It's the longest narrative we have in Acts, showing its importance. It's repeated multiple times, the story of what happened between Peter, with Peter and the Gentiles. Because when it, you see it repeated like that in Acts, what Luke is trying to say is this is really important. This is really, really, really important. And Peter recounts the story. And then in verse 15 of chapter 11, he says, As I began to speak, in other words, as I began to preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, speaking of Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter's saying, I'm not God and I don't be, pretend to be. So who am I to resist what God is doing? Who are you to resist what God is doing? Who are you to ask why I would eat with these people when God has brought them into our family? Now, this text is just rich with all sort of gospel implications that we can't even get into all of them this morning. But I want you to see three clear things here about diversity in the gospel here from this passage. Number one, God is working to build a diverse and unified church. God is working to build a diverse and unified church. This was a big deal to first century Jews. There was a lot of animosity between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were God's covenant people who had been given the law. They viewed Gentiles as, an un, as unclean as we mentioned. And a Jew would not even eat with them, as we mentioned, much less go in their home, as Peter did here. And a Gentile, remember, is every race of people, not Jewish. Now, God's plan always involved the nations. It always involved all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all races, not just a nation or one particular ethnic group. All the way back from the beginning, when God chose Abraham to make him a great nation. In fact, in Genesis 12, 3... God says to Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 22, verse 18, God tells Abraham, in your offspring, one particular offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
And in Genesis 11, God scatters the nations. You know the story of the Tower of Babel? The people get together and they decide, we don't need God, let's just build this big tower to heaven to show how great we are and to make a great name for ourselves. And people will talk about us always and forever. And so they start trying to live independently of God and making a name not for God but for themselves. And so at that time, God busts up the earth a little bit here and creates all these different languages. So we end up with all these different languages and all these different cultures. That happens in Genesis 11. Now what we're seeing in the gospel is that God, and beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12 and through the work of the gospel is God is bringing the nations together again. He's bringing them together again through the gospel. One people. Now in heaven, we will see this perfectly. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. On earth, we see it imperfectly, but the church should be an imperfect yet prophetic picture to the world of what God is doing. Racial integration. Let me be clear. Racial integration, not racial segregation, is God's goal. And it is heaven's reality. We see God at work in Cornelius and Peter's life to build this diverse, unified church. He's working in both Peter, the believer, and Cornelius, the one who needs to come to saving faith in Christ. And he's working in both their lives and he's orchestrating this event and it doesn't go down just like every little conversion goes down because it's this monumentous picture, picture of what's happening of God is taking these two people that have nothing in common and he's putting them together in one family, one body. Cornelius gets to pick the, the appearance from an angel. We hear about how God has seen his search, his grasp, and God is committed to getting the gospel to Cornelius. And God is at work drawing people to himself. He's committed to building his church, and he's intentional about seeking out worshipers and getting the gospel to people. And then we see in Peter, he's praying along with God. A regular part of Peter's life was to seek God, and God speaks to Peter. Gives him this vision about food that he finds out has to do with more than food. It's about people. It's about people. It's an illustration that, yes, has implications for food, but much bigger implications about people. He wasn't not to just call any food unclean, but any people unclean. And he says, God has, Peter says these words, God has shown me. In other words, this is what God is teaching me and how he's growing me. And through God's working in both the life of a lost man named Cornelius and this saved apostle, we see God's commitment to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue into his church for the power of the gospel. We see God's plan was never to build a Jewish church, but a multicultural, multiracial church. Nor is it God's plan to build a white church, or a rich church, or a poor church, or a black church, or a Hispanic church, or an Asian church, or we can go on and on and on and on, but to build a church. The universal church is diverse, and the goal of the local church should be to, as much as God's grace permits us, to reflect that diversity. That should be a hope and a prayer. There were not people much different than these two men. Peter is Jewish and a fisherman. One is a centurion Roman Soldier, an Italian, different races, different financial situations, very different people. And God brings them together. See, they weren't in each other's natural circles. They wouldn't even eat together, much less hang out and play golf, much less live in the same neighborhood. But they did have Imago Dei in common. They were both created in the image of God. They had sin in common. 
They had both fallen well short of God's glory. And they had the human experience in common. And soon they'd have Jesus in common. And forgiveness of sin in common. The body of Christ in common. And all the benefits that come with knowing Jesus in common. The indwelling Holy Spirit in common. In church, we need to be committed to what God's committed to. We, we see in this passage and throughout the New Testament, and really throughout the Bible, God's commitment to this. And it's easy for a church to say we want a diverse church full of all races and socioeconomic backgrounds. But if we walk in ignorance, or if we walk in lack of empathy, or we walk in a lack of... Un- without being intentional, lack of intentionality, then we're working against, really, whether we realize it or not, we can be working against what God's working for. We may not even know it. We were on vacation this week. We were at the beach. And one of Cannon's favorite things to do when we go down to the beach is to build sandcastles. The way I build sandcastles and the way Cannon builds sandcastles is totally different. My idea of building a sandcastle is I build it and you leave it alone. Right? Cannon's idea is as soon as you get it built, I destroy it and you build me another one. So, there's a disconnect, right? And so I don't, he thinks we're building sandcastles. I, I'm like, this is, we're not on the same wavelength here, right? I do all this, and, and it's not great. I'm a horrible sandcastle builder. That's why we have all the little tools that like basically make it for you, right? I just dump sand in a bucket turn it over. And, and then Cannon comes through, and as quickly as I can stack them up, and uh, if you're new with this, Cannon's my, our four-year-old, and he comes through, and he just starts kicking it over and destroying and all that kind of stuff, building another one. I'm like, I don't think you understand. I'm building sandcastles. You're destroying sand. We're not on the same page. I think sometimes we can be on a different page from God and not even fully realize it or understand it. And I think there's a lot of this in the church where we don't realize sometimes how our complete lack of understanding, lack of empathy, lack of intentionality of other cultures and other races works against what God is actually desiring to do. And if God is purposely building a diverse and unified body, don't we have a responsibility to get outside of our box that we tend to live in? Number two, the gospel tears down ethnic and cultural walls. God's got this plan. He's doing this. We see this. How's He doing it? He's doing it by the means of the gospel. The gospel tears down ethnic, racial, and cultural walls. Peter shares the gospel, but notice he starts with how the gospel is changing him. I understand that God shows no partiality, he says. And Peter had come to understand that God does not favor one people or one race or one nation over another. Peter goes through the story of Jesus with him. Healing, the works of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection. He's just sharing the Jesus story, right? And in verse 42 he says, He's appointed... By God. Jesus has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Who's that? That's everybody. He's the judge of everybody. The living and the dead. Anybody that's alive or dead. Any race, any people group. Verse 43, to Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And you see the word all a lot in His sermon. Because the the purpose, the, the, the thrust of His message is on the inclusivity of this exclusive gospel. It's only Jesus, but it's for everybody. Jesus is the only way, but whosoever will may come. And the gospel is a message for all people. And it has the power to bring down ethnic and cultural and racial walls because Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is judge of all. And everyone who believes in Jesus can be forgiven and are made one in Christ. 
Notice when the gospel is preached, suddenly they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I love it. As, as a pastor, I love this, by the way. This is in the middle of the sermon. People just getting saved. Holy Spirit. I mean, he's like, well, we ain't even done the last song yet. You know, we've got, we didn't even take up the offering. You know, I didn't even say every head bowed, every eye closed. I didn't even get to do, you know, whosoever will may come. I didn't even get to give my invitation. And people are just getting saved left and right. Next thing you know, the invitation just turns into a baptismal service. Because God just shows up in power. And what we see here is he preaches the gospel. And what happens? The racial, ethnic, cultural wall falls before he even finishes the sermon. And by the time he's done with the sermon, this Roman centurion is now his brother in Christ. The gospel is God's means of saving and unifying his people into one people. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14, I think it's on the screen for you this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, talking about Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. So, what does that mean for a room full of mostly, if not entirely, Gentile people? Folks, if the gospel tears down the wall between Jew and Gentile, how much more so does it tear down the racial, ethnic, and cultural walls that we see in our own society today? The gospel doesn't put up racial and cultural walls. It tears them down. And the church is to show the beauty of multi-ethnic, multicultural people represented in one unified body united by the blood of Jesus. In our culture, racial, cultural tensions can run high. We've seen a lot of that, especially more recently and at various times in our society. And the gospel is the one message that unites and tears down a lot of the walls that get constructed. Because in the gospel we learn that everybody needs to be saved. Everybody. In the gospel we learn that Christ died for all. And all who believe can be saved. And all who are saved are one people of God and are given the Holy Spirit and are a part of one body, the body of Christ. That's why when they get saved, they get baptized. That's why it was such a big deal that he baptized them. Why does he make such a big deal about the baptism when he says, is there any reason I shouldn't baptize them? Because the moment he baptizes them, what he's saying is this, you are family. You are with us. You are one with us. Me and you are the same. We're really no different when it all boils down to it. That's what he's saying. Part of what he's saying when he says that, he is welcoming him in visibly to the family of God. And what he's saying is what God has done spiritually in the heart of man, who am I to try to prevent it with a physical barrier? Like baptism. And we need to understand that racism in all its forms, all of its forms, intentional, unintentional, is anti-gospel, is anti-Christ, is wicked and sinful and to be repented of. And we also need to understand that it still exists today and not act like it doesn't. And if you think your race, whatever that may be, makes you superior to anyone else, you are in sin. And if you feel the need to put up walls that the gospel has torn down between races, you are in sin. And I love you enough to tell you that and to beg with you to repent. This is why we must be quick to speak against racism in our culture when it arises from places like the so-called alt-right. You know, there was a big... I didn't go to the Southern Baptist Convention this year. If you're new with us, our church is affiliated with something called the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's just a way that we partner with other churches to to fund missions and like-minded churches that believe um, a lot of the same things we do in terms of core tenets of the faith. And and 
And I wasn't there this year, but something they did kind of made news in a lot of places. There was a resolution that was passed. And for the sake of time, I don't think I'm going to read it. I was thinking about it. And it made news because people, for one thing, didn't fully understand what they were you know, speaking against exactly. And it needed to be, some things needed to be clarified. And at first, it didn't, they didn't bring it before the body. And then they did. And it passed 99.9%. I guess there was like some one guy or gal that for whatever reason wanted to be whatever. But the re- so what they do is every year they have these resolutions. And they're not binding on churches because our denomination is not like some other denominations. We believe in the autonomy of the local church and so we have our own guidelines and stuff and bylaws and stuff that we live by. But a resolution at a Southern Baptist convention is when all these pastors and messengers from other churches get together and they say some things that they believe as a majority that they are feeling at that time that need to be stated. And so they'll write a resolution and they'll vote on it. And basically it's their way of saying to the culture and to the church, the people, these 5,000 people that were at this convention this year, this is what we believe, right? And so they had one on this, what is called um, the anti-gospel, anti-Christ of this alt-right, white supremacy racism that we do see in our culture today. A lot of people don't really understand what that is because if you're not real active on social media, you don't see a lot of this. Uh, But I'm pretty active on social media and I've got, and I see where other pastors who have um, multi-ethnic, multi-racial families and the hate uh, that gets spewed on them uh, and just the godless, perverse things that are said to them. Um, And so it was really important uh, that our convention speak out against it. And I would encourage you to Google it and go read um, what I would fully affirm if I'd been there as well, uh, that statement. Because it's important that where we see racism, that we speak against racism. We can't just be silent on these matters. And condemning racism in all its forms and manifestations is not a political thing. It's not a left-right thing. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing. It's a gospel thing. And many times, we're so afraid. I mean, listen, if, you're, if you think speaking against racism, if you think speaking against social injustice is liberal, you're letting the wrong people disciple you. That's not a liberal thing. That's a Jesus thing. That's a brother and sister in Christ thing. That's a, a Mago Day thing. We have to be understanding of that. Racism in all of its forms... Is sinful and rooted in, it's really rooted in prideful idolatry of race and ethnic origin. And God hates it. And every person in the world is going to give an account to a Middle Eastern Jewish man who spent several years working a blue collar job in Israel. And the only hope of heaven of every person in the world is a Middle Eastern Jewish man who spent several years working a blue collar job who bled and died for. Christians have to be willing to lovingly and honestly talk about and listen to one another about race, reconciliation, justice, these issues. We have to be willing to talk about these things. Let me just be real. As a 30, how old am I? 37 year old, I think, I don't know, white man from Alabama, I have no idea what it's like to be a black man in America. That much. And unless you are one, you don't either. I have no idea what it's like to be a Middle Eastern man in a post-9-11 America. And unless you are one, you don't either. And unless we, we learn to listen and show empathy and have a lot more gospel and a lot less debate, 
will not be the salt light we need to be and we won't see the healing we need to see. Gospel people should want justice for all people. Because everybody's made in God's image and justice should always work for everybody. We should all be able to agree on that. And we need to listen and learn from our black and brown brothers and sisters when they say, I don't always feel like it works the same for me. Rather than throw a debate or a statistic or whatever it might be that you pull out or retweeting an article at them, listen, talk, and pray. This is bigger than race, though. The gospel tears down the wall between you and those that just aren't like you in whatever way. The gospel doesn't allow a wall between rich and poor or wealthy and not as wealthy or educated and uneducated. The gospel doesn't allow us to have a church for us unless us means people who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. There's no one that you get to consider, as Peter says, unclean or uncommon. No one you get to put over there and look down your nose at. We don't get to do that. The gospel has tore all those walls down. But we tend to gravitate away from diversity. Even though the gospel moves us towards it, human nature is to gravitate away from it. And it happens in Peter's life. Now Peter, remember, he's the hero it looks like here. But when you get over Galatians, he doesn't look like the hero anymore. He messes up. Listen to Galatians 2, 11-14. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, this is Paul writing. So this is sometime later. He shows up at Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. What in the world? That sounds very harsh. Because he stood condemned. Oh my goodness. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, good old Barnabas, who we have nothing but great things to say about all through Acts, Peter even leads him astray, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what happened. Peter's hanging out there in Antioch and Jews and Gentiles are hanging out together and Peter's hanging out and he's eating with them, hanging out with them. He's saying, I'll take a BLT. You know, pass me some ham. You know, he's, he's all about it, right? He's, he's woohoo, you know, I'm all about this. We're one church. And then some people from back in Jerusalem who were kind of still not for this whole, they didn't really get this whole Gentile Jewish thing. And a lot of them actually believed you needed to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. All kinds of weird stuff. They show up and Peter in fear shrinks back and he says, I'll eat over here at this table with those guys. And so Paul doesn't go to him over in a corner because he sinned very publicly and probably humiliated these Gentiles. Right in front of everybody, he says, I opposed him to his face. And he says, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're a hypocrite. And when we treat others as second class citizens of the church or the kingdom, our conduct is not in step with the gospel. And when we're only concerned with reaching those like us, whatever that means, our conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And we have to always be asking ourselves this question, are there walls in my heart and life that the gospel has torn down that I've tried to erect again? Because the gospel tears down those walls. Number three, God's work will be accomplished. God's work of this diverse but unified church will be accomplished. When you get to the end of chapter 11, when Peter gives the account, what does he say? If God gave them the same gift to them as He gave to us, when we believe the Lord Jesus, who is I that I could stand in God's way? 
Who are we to keep out, is what he's saying, who God has brought in? And in Jerusalem, Peter's point is simple when he's there. He's saying, I can't stop God and why would I try? It's like, you know, standing out on a train track and an Amtrak's coming down the road and you've got to make a decision. I can get out on that train track and try to stop that train. I can stand off to the side and let it pass by. Or I can board the train, right? You have no chance at stopping the train. And Peter understood something much more powerful than a train's happening here. God's at work and He's doing something. And so I can try to stop it and get run over. I can stand by and with my you know, hands in my pockets and watch the movement of God pass me by or I can board the train. And he got on board. He got on board. And when the church got on board with what God was doing in the world in Acts 10 and 11, it exploded. And God is intent on growing and multiplying the global body of Christ and His will shall be done. It shall be done. And that's good news. It's good news. And we'll see it perfectly done in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth. However, in this life, we don't see it done perfectly. But here the church, while we can't perfectly display diversity and unity in God's people, we can give pictures, we can give foretastes. But listen to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, talking to Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says something similar. No one can stand in God's way. The end of the book, I've read it. It's happened. And there will come a day when people from every tribe and tongue will all be in the same church at the same time and nobody will feel like they don't fit in. Nobody will feel like this isn't my people. Think about this. Jesus told us to pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what implications does that have for diversity in the church? Where else on earth are a bunch of old and a bunch of young, and middle-aged, and white, and black, and Hispanic, and Asian, and so on and so forth, and rich, and poor, and highly educated, and uneducated people are going to get together and love one another, and serve one another, and to see each other as equals, to build one another up, and to sacrifice for one another, and be generous to one another. We are to show the world what true community is supposed to look like. And I love how the passage ends, because it's so much different than how Jonah ends. Mentioned Jonah at the beginning of the message. Because Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. He didn't want to because they were a Gentile, wicked people. So there's a lot of racial overtones in Jonah that you can miss if you don't understand that. I'm not doing that. So God disciplines him. He ends up in the belly of a fish because God rescues him from the ocean. Couldn't let him drown, but he didn't. He saves him. And then... Jonah finally says, okay, Lord, I don't like it, but I'll go do it. So he goes and he tells Nineveh, unless they repent, they're going to be destroyed. And what happens? They repent. And God does this great revival breaks out in this wicked Gentile city. And the book of Jonah ends sad. It ends with Jonah on a hillside overlooking, mad that they repented and that God didn't destroy them. And it ends with just God questioning Jonah. But see, Jesus told us in his ministry that one better than Jonah, one better than Jonah has come. And the one better than Jonah who is here, the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And Jesus was glad to rescue Gentile and Jew alike and all peoples from all groups. And he turns 
us, you and I, into people who love other people, who see other people as all as image bearers of God and other people as all people whom Jesus shed His blood for. And we see those other people and we want them brought into the family of God. And, and what you see at the end of this passage is when they hear that the Gentiles are saved, they're not sitting on a hillside pouting. These people who have been changed by the gospel are worshiping and glorifying God. And it's night and day from Jonah to Acts. And the difference is Jesus. God has tore down the wall of hostility and He's bringing in every tribe and tongue and nothing, not a single thing, can stop what God's doing. And that is awesome and encouraging. But in the meantime, very quickly, how do we pursue diversity and unity in the body in light of these things? We need to seek the heart of God in prayer. God worked in Peter's life as he was praying. God worked in Peter's life when he remembered what Jesus spoke to him. God uses the word and God uses prayer to change hearts. And if we want to pursue diversity and unity in the body and in our lives, we need to seek the heart of God in prayer. Secondly, we need to let the gospel shape our worldview. Peter was being shaped by the gospel. It was the gospel was the message that tore down the walls. And it's the gospel that should be shaping our worldview, not entertainers or musicians or artists or political pundits or commentators or politicians or cultural commentators or news stations or magazines or websites. But the gospel should be shaping our worldview because everyone else wants to make a dollar off shaping your worldview. They've got a vested interest in getting you to believe what they believe. We need to be gospel people. Only the Holy Spirit has perfect motives in your life to shape you and mold your worldview. And when the gospel shapes your worldview, the gospel will shape how you view other people. And you'll experience a lot less fear and a lot more love. And thirdly, we need to engage with and love all people. A big step here for Peter was that he showed up when God told him to show up. He went to the door and he knocked on the door and he walked in the house and he sat down and when they invited him to stay a while, he stayed a while. He engaged them and he, he loved them. And we will never grow in ministering to others if we do not engage others. Our good intentions will not move conversations forward. We'll not, our good intentions will not welcome people from different cultures, backgrounds, races, and all socioeconomic differences. Good intentions are simply not enough. We've got to engage and learn and listen and pray. And I hope we see a mighty move of God in Central Florida and in North Park of people coming into the kingdom and into North Park. People of every race and culture and background and economic status. I pray that God will give us white people, black people, brown people, people come from an Islamic background, a Buddhist background, a white collar background, a blue collar background, people from up north, people from down south, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals that God would give us the nations by the power of the gospel. And that, I hope, would be all of our prayer this morning. So here's the thing. First, have you believed the good news of the gospel? And no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, it's for you. It's for you. So you don't know what I've done. You don't need to know what you've done. It's probably no worse than what the Apostle Paul did. And it was for him, and it's for you. The gospel, all who believe, and if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Christ who died in your place and rose again, you can be saved. Secondly, as a believer, how might God want to stretch you and use you in His work of building a diverse and unified church? How might He want to challenge you in that? Are there walls that need to be torn down in your life? Sin that needs to be repented of? 
thoughts that need to be challenged. Pray, seek God, ask, and let the gospel do its work. Let's pray.